0: there. I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's Time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey, Java junkies, what's going on? How's life? How's school? Hope work doesn't feel too much like work. In fact, if you decide to take on board the study hacks from today's guest, you could be more productive at work. And for those of you who are still in school, my next guest could actually help you figure out what you should work on when you gravitate towards making that decision when you graduate. So grab a mug and get ready to chug a big swig of your favorite coffee because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. Professor Cal Newport is a writer and a professor of computer science at Georgetown University. But I promise you, we're not going to be talking coding, but rather how technology intersects with society. Professor Newport is the author of five books and runs the popular advice blog, Study Hacks, which attempts to decode patterns of success in both school and the working world. Cal, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go?
1: I certainly am caffeinated. So I guess that means I'm ready.
0: Awesome. So I'd like to kind of set the stage for the Java Junkie community and for those who may not yet be familiar with you and your books and study hacks and tell them that even though you are yourself a millennial and are a computer science professor, you have very deliberately never owned a social media account. Can you share why you made that decision?
1: Hey, it turns out that it is a uh, this is allowed <laughs> you're allowed not to have a social media account though i'm one of the few uh, of my age group who never has uh, the original decision i don't even remember exactly why i decided back in college when the facebook.com first showed up on our radar screen not to sign up for it i think it had something to do with the fact that i had been uh, an entrepreneur a, a tech entrepreneur in high school and into my first years of college and i was a contemporary of mark zuckerberg and so there was probably some sort of latent professional jealousy there i said well wait a second why is his company so much more <laughs> successful than mine i don't want to i don't want to give him the satisfaction which i'm sure he cares about uh, so whatever the incidental reason was i ended up not signing up in those first couple of years when social media was really sweeping through my age demographic. And having that little bit of separation allowed me to sort of see these technologies somewhat more objectively. And and to me, they always seemed a lot more optional Than people came to believe. I also noticed among my peer group how some of these services that they had signed up for originally for very minor reasons started to take over more and more of their time and attention without them even noticing. And that kind of scared me. So going forward, I decided uh, that doesn't look like a pool I wanted to be swimming in. I'm a little nervous about it. And so I just never signed up with any of the new services that have become popular since.
0: And how has it affected your personal and professional life as a result of it. We will get into deep work in a minute, but I'm just saying from a social standpoint, how has that affected your life?
1: Uh, it's had no discernible negative impact. I, I still have friends. I still know what's going on in the world. Uh, I still have an audience I love that I've cultivated through a blog, which I own on a server that I own, as opposed to being on you know owned by Facebook in some data center. I still manage to sell books and know what's going on in the world. And so I've, I've seen no negative impact to social media. I think a lot of what happens when people assess the role of social media in their lives is that they point out benefits, which really do exist. But the calculus they don't do is thinking, you know, if you remove those benefits, you're not going to be left destitute. So if you remove the ability to maybe connect with some friends over social media, sure, you cannot connect as easily with those friends, but it doesn't mean you're not going to have rich social connections in your life. And this has been my experience is a lot of what people use to claim that these services are indispensable. I found they're actually probably quite a bit more dispensable than people actually realize. Do you have a smartphone or do you use a flip phone? I do have a smartphone, my wife's old iPhone. When we had our our first kid, my wife made me switch from a flip phone to a smartphone so that uh, she could send me photos and the text messaging would work better. So I've been a a proudly reluctant owner of a smartphone for a little while now. But I'll tell you what, when you don't have social media apps or other applications that come from companies that make a profit off of uh, commandeering your attention, you don't end up looking at these things as much as most people do. So it probably has a lesser impact on my time and attention than these devices do for a lot of people.
0: Which gets us into your 2016 book, Deep Work, which argues, and please correct me if I mess this up, but that as we get more distracted due to the technologies in our lives, if Java junkies can successfully unplug from all their devices, they will become more productive on the job and therefore end in their schoolwork and therefore become a more desirable employee. Did, did I get that right?
1: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I, I call this the, the deep work hypothesis. And the claim is, as our knowledge economy gets increasingly demanding and complex, the uh, ability to focus intensely without distractions is becoming more and more valuable. focus is essentially the new IQ in the 21st century. It's becoming one of the most valuable skills you can have. At the same time, however, that the knowledge economy is putting more and more value on the ability to focus intensely, we have the growth of the attention economy. So companies like Facebook or Google who make their money off of distracting you and commandeering your attention and subverting your ability to focus. So people in general are becoming worse at maintaining concentration on cognitively demanding tasks. So this is classic supply and demand economics. If this skill is becoming more valuable at the exact same time that it's becoming more scarce, it's gonna be valued quite highly by the market. So this is a a message for your listeners. There's few things you could do that would be more valuable than cultivating your ability to focus intensely. I think it's just as important as, say, being able to write well, to communicate effectively, to be able to code a computer should be right up there on that list. If you can train yourself to be able to focus intensely on hard things, you are going to have a massive competitive advantage when you leave school and head out to the job market.
0: So I want to talk about how Java junkies can train themselves. But before I do that, could you explain what you mean by the knowledge economy?
1: Essentially, the, the growing sector of both the American and global economy, where uh, the, the main product is the produced by human minds. So instead of, for example, a manufacturing sector type company that produces a car, that produces a physical object, a knowledge economy type sector is one in which it's actually thought work is the primary work. So producing computer code, advertising, writing, journalism, anything in which it's human minds that are producing the value. You're producing new information, new knowledge that's valued by other people. This is the knowledge economy, and it's becoming an increasingly dominant part of the American economy.
0: I'm not an expert in this, but I would have thought that that has been a pretty significant piece of the American economy for some time. When did this shift happen?
1: Well, typically we see the focus on the knowledge economy becoming more dominant, that around mid-century, mid-20th century, we begin to see this shift away from a fundamentally farming and industrial base towards one that's more knowledge-based. So it's really starting mid-century that we even get the the term knowledge work coined for the first time. This is where we get Drucker talking about it for the first time. Uh, But the shift has been accelerating because as we went through the 60s and 70s into the 80s, we saw it sort of an increasing decrease of the industrial sector in our economy. So as more industrial work was more automated and outsourced, the sort of share of our economy that's gone towards knowledge work has been increasing. And that, that's been an acceleration that picked up probably in the last two or three decades. And so we're we, we're seeing this becoming increasingly dominant. It's been around, but the speed at which it's taking over is accelerating.
0: So in order for Java junkies to properly embrace deep work, is it possible for them to compartmentalize their social media engagement? Or do they have to kind of go Cold turkey and completely unplug.
1: Well, I think the right way to think about this is uh, if you want your mind to be in shape, you have to think about attention economy products like social media in the same way that an athlete trying to keep their body in shape would think about fast food or smoking, right? It's not that it is uh, morally wrong to ever eat a hamburger but if you're a professional athlete, you'd be very wary about eating uh, hamburgers in general because you're trying to keep your body in shape. And I think the same thing happens for your mind. So what I recommend to people is, as a first step, take the social media applications off your phone. So I'm not asking you to quit anything at this point, and I'm not asking you, therefore, to lose any of the potential benefits that you get from your various social media accounts. But what I am doing is preventing you from being able to use mobile access to social media as a crutch that you pull out every time you're the slightest bit bored. Uh, This turns out to be the real killer in terms of productivity when it comes to social media. It's not just when you're working, you might get distracted and look at social media. It's outside of work. If you train your brain that at the slightest hint of boredom, it's going to get this quick hit of entertainment that uh, you're a little bit bored waiting in line, you're going to see a tweet or you're going to see what's going on in your Facebook's wall. If you train your brain that boredom means stimuli, then when it comes time during the workday, to do the cognitively demanding, high-focused type of effort that's going to produce real value and help your stock rise within your professional career, your mind won't tolerate it. It will say, this is boring because there's not a lot of novel stimuli. Where is my shiny digital tree? So by simply taking social media off your phone as a first step, you're already gonna get huge benefits with respect to your ability to concentrate because your brain is gonna get more used to this idea that it doesn't always get quick entertainment when it's bored. Now you can go you can go uh, beyond that. Once you're comfortable with that, then you should do a more serious reflection on, okay, which of these services is actually bringing significant value to my life and which is just sort of like a mild distraction that I signed up for randomly and never thought to quit. And you can do a sort of minimalist sweep through your digital life but just get things off your phone is going to get you 80% of the value and so that's the first step that I tell people.
0: So can you break down for us I know you've got four rules in deep work to transform our minds and habits. Was that the first one or are we not in the rules yet?
1: That would I guess that would be the second rule which is embrace boredom which is all about this idea that you have to get your mind in shape for doing deep work and that's one of the things you can do to get there.
0: Great so what was what was one and then could you take us through the different steps and the different rules
1: right so rule one was called work deeply and this is about how you actually structure your work day be it what you do as a student or what you do in the job market, how you actually structure your workday to be more supportive of deep work. So it's how do you actually build a workday around concentration being an important part of the day. And some of the big ideas from this step is that, first of all, you wanna pre-schedule When you're going to do highly concentrated work, don't just uh, wait until you feel like you're in the mood for it because, spoiler alert, that's going to be basically never. So you you want to schedule this. I often suggest scheduling it on your calendar like you want a doctor's appointment or a meeting. So once it's on there just like a doctor's appointment or a meeting, you will protect that time if something else comes up and tries to take it. So if someone says, oh, can you come join our study group Tuesday at three, but you already have two to four blocked off to to work deeply on something, you can say, oh, I have something from two to four. You could do it another time. Uh, Another idea that comes out of that step is that people who are very good at deep work tend to have rituals that they conduct right before they start deep work sessions just to help their mind slip into that mindset of we're doing concentration now, not distraction. And it can be as simple as you walk a certain route, or you go to a particular location. Uh, when I was at Dartmouth College, there was a particular library, the Dana Biomedical Library, that had these old fashioned stacks where the floors were concrete and it was metal bookshelves. And hidden in the bowels of the, each of these uh, aisles of books, they had individual desks with one bright incandescent light over it. And so for me, going to Dana Biomedical Library to one of those hidden monastic desks was my ritual to tell my mind as a college student okay. It's time to think hard. Uh, so that's that's the work deeply. Uh, embrace boredom, we talked about. And the bigger idea with the embrace boredom step is that deep work is a skill and not a habit. And this is something that's really important. A lot of people think that deep work is a habit, like flossing their teeth. Mm -hmm. something they know how to do. It's just they need to make more time to do it. That's not at all the case. It's actually more like playing the guitar. It's a skill that if you don't practice, you should not expect to be good at. And so you really have to put in a lot of work to practice, especially for college students, because I work with a lot of college students. Uh, If you just decide tomorrow, I want to go, work deeply. I want to concentrate hard for four hours with no distractions. You might have a very hard time succeeding with that if you haven't been preparing your mind for that effort. And so that step is all about different things you can do to prepare yourself. So embracing boredom more frequently in your life, taking social media off your phone, this is one thing you can do to help prepare your brain. But I also work with students to do uh, and young adults to do active exercises where they actually use intervals right, for 20 minutes with a timer going, I'm going to concentrate intensely without glancing at a single inbox web browser or phone. If I can make it through 20 minutes and keep my concentration high, if I can do that regularly, I'm going to add 10 minutes to that interval. And so maybe every week or so, you're increasing the interval with which you do this training. So you can actually actively push your ability to work deeply. Then the third step was called quit social media. And this is where I really recommend that people take a very careful cost-benefit analysis of all the different tools they have in their life uh, that are trying to grab their time and attention. If you have something on your phone or on your computer that is produced by a company that makes more money... The more time you spend looking at it, be very, very careful about whether or not you use it and what rules you use to use it. Because it's again, it's like cigarettes for an athlete. If you're going to succeed in a cognitive economy, you have to have a lot of respect for your brain, for your ability to concentrate, for your ability to recharge. And those things can be dangerous. And then the final rule is called drain the shallows. And it's a lot of advice for people in the working world on how to make sure that the non-deep responsibilities they have, like answering emails or going to meetings, doesn't take over so much time that nothing is left for you to think deeply.
0: I want to go back, Cal, to number three and dig in there a little bit more because something you said in one of, I think it was a TED Talk that you gave that really stuck with me in a way that I haven't heard others describe is that having social media on your phone is like having a slot machine on your phone. It's that
1: addictive. People don't, especially younger people, don't recognize the degree to which these companies are investing tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars to make the experience as addicting as possible. The more times they can get you to look at that screen on your phone, the more money they can make. They track that metric active user minutes more than anything else and it's at the core of their stock price. Their investors are demanding it. So if they can get you to look at it twice as much, it's going to be an incredible coup for them. So they hire individuals called attention engineers who borrow techniques from Las Vegas casino gambling among other different uh, fields to try to make the experience of using their products as addictive as possible. Think about something that seems innocuous, like the like button. Oh, I can, click like if I like someone's Facebook post. A lot of thinking went behind it. One of the reasons why most social media services have adopted some sort of one click button you can do to give a a small indicator of approval is because it increased the amount of what they call social approval indicators that come in through your feed. And they recognize from human psychology that the more that there might be something waiting for you to see that indicates another human being saying something positive about you makes it more and more irresistible for you to go back and click on that app. So even something as innocuous as the like button is actually the result of very careful thinking about how can we get you to click more. The very color of the badges in something like Facebook were worked on to make the color match more the alarm signals in our brain. The original color for the Facebook notification badges were blue because that's the palette of Facebook. But the attention engineer said, no, 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 a bright red actually triggers an alarm response in the human brain. It makes it harder to resist. There's a thousand little decisions that go on like that, all meant to take advantage of your time and attention. And so these companies try to come across as like, hey, we're just like the nerd gods handing down these fun gifts that that just make your life more interesting. But what's really going on is that they're trying to relentlessly and ruthlessly capture as much of your time and attention as possible. And this is why I have this huge skepticism towards these companies. I think they get uh, a huge pass, especially from young people who think like, well, this is just sort of some indispensable technology. Everyone uses it. But there's some more devious things going on. I mean, these things are invented to take over your time and attention the average us facebook user uses their products over 2 hours a day that is a lot of time that could be put to much more productive use and so i don't mean to i don't mean to rant <laughs> but uh, i i do like to at least plant some seeds of skepticism when people are thinking about these type of tools in their life
0: well i actually think there was something else that you said that is cause for alarm beyond the like, "Eh, okay, so I wasted or spent two hours of my day on Facebook, on Instagram, on Snapchat, but there's research out there. And I was hoping you could share some of that about what this tech
1: is actually doing to our brains. Yeah. So the, the problem, we, we, there's a lot of research now uh, and I've spent a lot of time going through it. And a lot of times it'll seem contradictory, right? Like so, so recently when I was working on a, a new book, I, I got into um, a collection of studies that were all published around the same time last year. And half of the studies said Facebook is making or social media in general makes people more depressed and more lonely. And the other papers said, well, actually, you know, Facebook use in particular makes people happier and less lonely, right? So what's going on? So I, so I, I looked at these papers, um, and here's what was the differences. So the, the papers that found that you know oh social media use could make you feel less lonely or happier. Those papers all I should note had a Facebook scientist as one of the co-authors. Um, but more importantly, what those studies did was studied social media use in isolation, right? So they say okay if we if we put you in a room essentially if you're just sitting in a room and doing nothing versus sitting in the room and uh, leaving a comment on a friend or family member's Facebook post. Not surprisingly, you're a little bit more happier doing the latter. Now, interestingly, leaving a comment on someone you don't know or reading comments from people you don't know well doesn't make you any happier. Reading news doesn't make you any happier. But... Okay, if I leave a comment on my sister's Facebook page, it's a little bit happier than in a lab doing nothing. But what the studies found that showed that Facebook and social media were making you less happy, what they looked at was just, well, how much time do you use social media? And then how how lonely or how depressed are you? And they found an incredibly robust finding that the more that you use it in real life, the more likely you are to be depressed and lonely. What seems to be going on here is that social media use in real life is replacing or crowding out other real life activities that are more valuable. So especially with young people, they move more and more of their socializing onto uh, their social media platforms. But what the research makes clear is that the benefits you get from socializing online are dwarfed by the benefits you get from analog interaction, the type of interaction that we've been evolved for hundreds of thousands of years to crave and need. So if you allow social media to crowd out the old-fashioned stuff that really is valuable, that type of analog interaction and connection, you end up net-net much, much more lonely, much, much more depressed. So what seems to be ha- is not so much that the actual act of doing something on social media is making you unhappy. It's the letting your time and attention be increasingly spent on these and letting that replace time being spent on more analog activities are leading you to really, really miss the latter and end up much worse off.
0: And by analog, you mean like the old-fashioned face-to-face uh, interactions? Yes.
1: Yeah, so anything where you have... So so a phone call counts because you're getting the a, a human voice over a phone is an analog signal. You have all the different... Uh, changes in tonation and timber and the subtleties of the conversation, uh, and in person or, or or over video, anything where you have a sort of analog signal, we a hundred percent need a lot of this in our life as human beings to be happy. And it's really, really clear that trying to replace it with these digital tools does not work. Our brain, which has evolved over hundreds of thousands of years as a social sapien, does not see. Facebook comments, likes, Instagram, Snapchats—it does not see those as the same thing as analog interaction. So those those are not a replacement for what for what we need. But for a lot of young people, they're doing that, and it's making them much more anxious, much more depressed, and much more lonely.
0: So for a generation like Gen Z, the eighteen to twenty five year old Java junkies that listen to this show, are you kind of in effect asking them, encouraging them? To become social outcasts by shutting down their social accounts, because that is how this generation communicates.
1: Uh, in a sense, I'm suggesting that as a possibility. Yes, I'm am suggesting a, a a some maybe a radical <laughs> proposal, but saying really consider what I call the deep life, which is you know get off a bunch of this digital junk, focus on analog social media. That is, have a good group of friends and your family that you put in the time to do things with, to talk to, to see in person, to be a part of their life, be a part of your community, show up at things, do things that's useful for your community, volunteer. Uh, if you're a member of a religious or you know congregation, you know, go there, be a part of these communities, do the old fashioned stuff. There may be many, many people you used to contact in a lightweight way on social media that you no longer contact anymore. I think that, that you're going to be much, much happier and you're going to be a much more positive presence in people's life. Same thing. Don't obsessively read news online. Get a newspaper <laughs> or once a day. Like get enough news, so you know what's going on without obsessively allowing your attention to be hijacked by the companies who, who need your eyeballs to make money. Find work that, that is important to you and work really hard on it. And when you're done working, have analog leisure activities instead of binge watching Netflix or, or uh, mindlessly going through Twitter, trying to find a funnier, outrageous tweet. Learn how to do analogs, how to build things, how to build a skill, how to play guitar, join a sports league, become one of these CrossFit aficionados that's trying to push your <laughs> strength to the limit whatever it is i'm telling you and i know this sounds crazy for someone who's maybe 20 years old or 21 years old as you enter the real world your life is going to arguably be much much more satisfying and impactful if you leave behind a lot of this digital stuff and embrace the old-fashioned analog stuff do it deeply do it well that's what we're wired for i do want to not to scare the java junkies out there but there's very scary demographic research about your generation janine twinge who has new book uh, out called IGEN, IGEN is her name for generation z is a, a a very alarming book. She's one of the experts on trends in different generations. She's the expert at studying trends between generations. And what she's seen with this sort of iGen Generation Z is that incidents in sort of anxiety and anxiety-related disorders are off the charts. She's never seen an increase in any trait so large between two generations to what they see as we go from the millennials into iGen. And they and different collaborators have looked for every single explanation they could. And by far, the strongest explanation they found is that this is the first generation to grow up with smartphones. The first generation to have a smartphone starting their early teenage years and have access to social media starting their early teenage years. And it is literally driving people crazy. It's a a massive social health uh, uh, epidemic that's going on, mental health epidemic that probably has a lot to do with our brains are not meant to be constantly stimulated and communicating to people through these sort of very novel and unusual digital channels. So this is my radical thing. You can ignore it or maybe do part of it, but at least consider it as one possibility for how to live your life as you leave college and go into the real world was this notion of downplay the digital You don't have to get rid of all your tools, but just use them much more instrumentally. Like I I have a particular need that I use this tool for, not as a general source of entertainment and socializing, and focus on analog social media, analog leisure, and deep connections to real people, the real community, and and real actual goals. It really is a much better life.
0: Thanks so much. I know that this is something that you're living and breathing every day and and that it's all coming from a a place of, of deep caring. I'd like to switch gears for a moment, Cal, and talk about another book that you wrote called So Good They Can't Ignore You, in which you had yet another provocative thesis. And that thesis is that we shouldn't be telling Java junkies to follow their passion when it comes to choosing their career, because that's bad advice. Could you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, I guess I'm full of uh, provocation today. <laughs> <laughs> so, though this one has a has a caveat that I or a, a clarification that probably makes it a little bit less provocative. So when I wrote this book, I wrote it when I was going through an important career transition, and the whole goal was to find out how do people end up loving their work? This is my goal. I want to know how people end up loving their work because I wanted to love my work. I wanted to spread this advice with others. And what I found as you, as you alluded to is the most common piece of advice is just tell someone to follow your passion. But the research makes it clear that if you just tell someone that you're actually reducing the probability probably that they're going to end up passionate about their work. The problem is twofold. One it assumes that most people, especially young people, have these clearly identifiable pre-existing passions. And all they have to do is match their job to this passion. and They'll really love their job. But we don't have a lot of evidence this is true. Uh, If you study people like I did who love their work, it's it's something like nine out of 10 of them had no idea in advance that this is what they would end up doing. Their path to work they love is much more complicated than just, I knew I was supposed to be a whatever, UX designer for a video game company. And then I did that and I was happy. Almost no one actually does that. And yet we tell people, this is what you should do as if if this is something just common. Uh, So most young people actually don't have clearly identifiable pre-existing passions that could be matched to our current job market. So you tell someone just follow your passion. Now you're confused. You're like, well, what am I supposed to do? The second problem is, is that this advice assumes that the key to enjoying your work is matching the topic of the work to a topic you already like. But again, we don't have a lot of evidence that that is true as well. What we do have is a lot of literature on workplace motivation and satisfaction that says the traits that matter if you want to love your job are more general. they are things like having a sense of autonomy in your work, like having a sense of mastery, like having a sense of impact and connection to people, like being able to regularly embrace creativity. And these traits are somewhat agnostic to the specific field of the job or the specific details of, say, computer programmer versus advertisement copywriter. So this idea that what matters most is the match of the specific work to a pre-existing Interest. We don't have a lot of evidence that's true either. So if you just tell people, follow your passion, follow your passion, follow your passion, uh, it's a good sounding little catchphrase, but it doesn't match at all what we know about how most people who love their work end up getting there.
0: Anecdotally, when I was in high school, I was passionate about animals and thought I wanted to be a veterinarian, but just did sort of a, a little self assessment and said math and science are not my strengths if I were to become or go through the process of trying to become a veterinarian, I'm probably looking at a good eight plus years of a lot of pain and suffering, and I'm not so sure I will excel. So I made a decision before I went off to college not to pursue veterinary medicine. And while I still love animals and have animals in my life, I actually do think it was the right choice.
1: Well, I think that type of that type of confusion is common. And it's what What is inevitably going to happen, when we take this ambiguous term passion and say, well, you have a passion, you need to follow this passion. And then people say, well, what does that mean? And then you get people who are young who are just thinking about things they like. And then trying to stretch and say, well, how can I build a career around that? Which which really doesn't match how people end up actually end up uh, loving their work. I mean, I love baseball, but this doesn't mean that like I need to be in a baseball front office to be happy in my career. And in fact, that career could be something I'm miserable in because this match of topic is not nearly as important as we think. So I think that's a great example you give. We all like various things, but that has less to do with creating a passionate career than we've been led to believe.
0: Cal, what should Java junkies do if they are in a profession right now that they don't particularly like, let alone love, how can they, and these are the young people who are not in undergrad anymore and may not be considering going into graduate school, how can they find that whatever it is that's going to light their fire?
1: So what I discovered in researching that book is that one of the more common paths to ending up passionate was to first go through an apprentice this type of stage where what you're doing is deliberately practicing rare and valuable skills. You're trying to, to build up rare and valuable skills to make yourself unambiguously valuable to the job market. The second stage is then using those skills as leverage to get more control over what you work on it, how you work on it, and why you work on it. To try to gain more autonomy control over your career. And it's at that stage where you're able to leverage hard-won skills to gain more control over your work life that we really start to see the sparks of, of uh, me and passion satisfaction start to arise. And so this is really the path I tend to advise to people is focus first on building up rare and valuable skills and then use those skills as leverage. Now, of course, there's going to be some fields for which this is still not going to lead you to like your work. If the, the field is in conflict with your values, you're never going to like your work. If you really dislike the people that you work with. You're never going to like to work. If you're in a field that is not going to give you a lot of options or control in exchange for you getting really, really good, you also are going to have a hard time shaping a career you love in that, uh, in that particular field. But if what you do does not fall into any of those three categories, I advise people to worry less about what is this job offering me and turn their attention to, what am I offering this job? And if you if you can't identify some skills that you have that are really, really valuable, then put your attention into honing those skills, especially early in your career. And, and, and don't worry so much early in your career as, is this exactly the right job for me? Skills are the currency on which passionate careers end up getting built.
0: So this is the knowledge economy that you were talking about earlier.
1: Yeah. So this actually, of course, translates even beyond the knowledge economy. It's definitely true in, the, in if you're thinking in the sort of skilled service economy as well. Uh, I mean, I advise your students read Matthew Crawford he, he really talks about the value inherent in skilled manual work he he raps can, he can wax rhapsodically about the sort of satisfaction in being master conduit bender uh, in the electrician field right like how how <laughs> taking something in the real world and by applying craft that's hard won doing something that's difficult and very effective can be one of the most fulfilling things uh, Mike Rose show Dirty Jobs really got into this idea that you know we found people that were doing these skilled service jobs that on paper you would How could anyone ever say that's their passion? And yet they're incredibly passionate about what they do because it's about skill and autonomy and mastery and having control over what you do and how you do it. So even beyond the knowledge economy, skills are the, it really is the currency of passion. And this is why I think it's so dangerous if you're your first two years, let's say out of college early in a job to be thinking too much about, is this the right job? Do I like it? What don't I like about this job? That's the time to say, how can I systematically and deliberately become so good I can't be ignored? How can I practice key skills in my job like a professional athlete, chess player, musician practices their craft and very quickly accelerate past my peers and how good I am? Everything good comes out of being good in the modern workplace. And so that should be your obsessive focus, at least at first when you enter the job market.
0: So what about you, Cal? You went to Dartmouth as an undergrad, and you majored in, no surprise, computer science. Why did you choose that major, and what did you think you were going to do with it after you graduated?
1: Well, I chose computer science because I was a computer geek as a kid. Uh, so it seemed natural why not study that? Um, and then as I was studying it, I there was a decision to be made. you know what do I want to do with this? So as I was leaving college, the, the different relevant decisions were I, I'd already uh, sold my first book at that point so I could write full-time. Uh, I could go into industry. obviously there's a need in industry for computer science skill or I could go into graduate school. and uh, you know I wrote an article about this years ago for the New York Times where I talked about this decision and what I said is any of those options, Could have been the foundation of a, of a working life that I really love that I reject this notion that there's one true path that's going to make you happy and others don't. So I chose grad school for various reasons that aren't so important. And I just worked with what I had there and made it into something that was a source of real passion. But what I want to emphasize in my story is like, but I could have also maybe gone to industry and I'm sure I could have built a really interesting life or I could have gone into full-time writing and it could have been a completely different, really interesting life. Or maybe I could have done another startup and that would, if done right, could also be really, really interesting and passionate that the particular choices aren't so important as what you do after you make the choice.
0: As someone who is on her fourth profession, you've got time. <laughs> <laughs> and certainly our Java junkies have time. And I think that is one of the big takeaways that I have in my life. At this stage, I'm 54 years old and you will evolve. Your interests, your priorities, what you need in your life will change and don't rule anything out. I mean, first of all, you are actually doing several professions right now and you may one day be an entrepreneur, Cal. You, I mean, I I don't know how you feel about that.
1: No, I think that's that is definitely true. You have to uh, stretch out when you stretch out the time frame. It takes off a lot of the sense of urgency that you might exactly. feel when you're younger. Exactly. What you choose at 22 is not what necessarily you're going to be doing at 62. So I I often say, choose something interesting uh, that maybe complements natural skills you may or may not have, and then focus on becoming so good you can't be ignored at that. That will lead to interesting things. Then reevaluate at that point.
0: That is such great advice. And before we go, I want our Java junkies to get a sneak peek about your sixth book that's coming out in early 2019 entitled Digital Minimalism. What is it about and how is it different from deep work?
1: So deep work was about uh, the value of focus in the professional marketplace. And so after I wrote that book and was going around doing events and speaking, I heard from a lot of readers who said, this is great. I I sort of am interested and I agree with, you know, these issues about distraction in the workplace. But what do we do about the negative impacts of technology in our personal life? Because that's even more important for a lot of people that, that there's an increasing number of people that really are feeling distressed about the role of technology in their personal life, the impact it's having on things they value, its impact on their mood, its impact on their ability to do more meaningful type of activity. So I said, okay, um, I will write about this particular issue of what about technology in your personal life. And so that's what digital minimalism is. It's a, it's a book about technology in your personal life. It argues that the key to thriving in a high-tech world is to use much less technology. And in more detail, it presents a philosophy that a lot of people are starting to adopt now called digital minimalism, in which you are very selective and very intentional about what technology you use in your personal life and how you use it. And so it's a rejection of the common maximalist mindset, which says, If a technology can offer you any possible benefit, you might as well let it into your life. It says, no, 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 that is a recipe for disaster. The right thing to do is to be very, very selective. You'd be very clear about what you value and what's important to you, and then put technology to work very intentionally to support those values and be happy missing out on everything else. So, digital minimalists use much less technology than most people, um, but use what they use very, very well. And because of this, have lives that can be much more sort of focused and meaningful and satisfying and happy than a lot of their. So I'm going to, this book is going to preach this philosophy and try to convince a lot more people to use a lot less technology.
0: And it's available for pre-order now. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's available for pre-order and it'll come out in February. Fantastic. Well, good luck with that
0: book. Um, as you know, as somebody who is forever trying to be more effective and have more focus and, and do deeper work, I appreciate having the, the tips that you put out and I hope our Java junkies will benefit from it as well. Professor Cal Newport, thank you so much for making time for coffee with me and the Java Junkie community today. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. And as I always say, if uh, I welcome all negative feedbacks and complaints, just direct it towards Facebook.
0: (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live.